Romans 11, verses 33 through 12, uh, verse 2. Oh, the depth and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Good morning, King's Cross. Uh, hey, it's really good to be with you guys uh, this morning. Um, for, for those of you who are, no, who are normally with us, I've actually had the last couple weeks off because uh, my son was born. Uh, got, thank you, uh, baby Judson Elliott. He's sitting up here in the front row with uh, my beautiful wife. Incidentally, um, Oscar was preaching last week. I just realized that, that was actually Judson's first, uh, uh, first, uh, I guess, Sunday gathering uh, with the local church. And last Sunday, uh, Oscar was actually preaching on mission. Uh, and my son's actually uh, named after uh, two great missionaries. And so uh, I did literally just had that revelation like a minute ago. My mind was like blown. And so uh, it's the little things. <laughs> um, but hey, brother Oscar, thank you so much for uh, serving us just the last couple weeks. Um, um, really, uh, it, it's, it's been a blessing for me to just sit under uh, your teaching and to just to worship uh, in the proverbial pews alongside you guys. Uh, but I'm excited to be back up here uh, to, to serve you, to be with you, and to just delight in God's word together. Um, if, you're, if you're just joining us this morning, we're doing something a little bit different here at the start of the year. Our normal sort of flow and, 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 and rhythm is to go through like books of the Bible verse by verse, but right now we're, we're, we're taking a break in uh, what we've been in the Gospel of Mark. We're taking a break from that book to sort of like pump the brakes, to slow down and pump the brakes and take a step back to sort of check under the hood, make sure that, that everything's in its right place, that we've got everything there that's supposed to be there, uh, to talk about who we are as a church community, to sort of reset our GPS and talk about where we're headed as a church community, what are the values that shape us, what kind of church are we praying that the Lord by his grace will continue to shape us to be. And so we started at the beginning of the year uh, talking about uh, through, you know, what, what, what in, in maybe a corporate atmosphere we might call our core values. We've been calling them like our family traits or like our building blocks, right? What does it mean? What does it look like to, to be a church that is centered on Jesus, a church that is all about Jesus. And so we started by talking about uh, truth. That was our first family trait, truth. And that's truth with a, with a capital T, truth that's derived from the scriptures. We talked about how truth is a thing. It can be, it, it, it's, it's real. It exists. There is objective truth and that it, it can be known and that it, it has been known. It has been revealed to us by God in the scriptures. And we talked about how the, 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 the sort of pinnacle, the main point of the scriptures is, is our second family trait, which is the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ. We talked about how we, we really never graduate from the gospel. 
We never really move on from it. All that we do as a church is centered on the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, the gospel in our third family trait doesn't just just save us and reconcile us with God, but it calls us into God's family, doesn't it? How uh, this, this thing that we do, this Christian life that we do isn't uh, something that we do solo, but it's more like a team sport. God calls us into a family, and so he calls us into community. And Oscar followed that up, uh, followed his message up on community last week with talking about mission, how we're a community on mission to, to make disciples, to make a difference in this world and place that God has called us to. This morning, we're looking at our family trait of worship. Worship. This, this idea that every single one of us is wired to worship. And as followers of Jesus, we've been rewired to worship God and to enjoy him forever. And so I'm going to walk you through three points this morning. First, we're going to just kind of unpack that fact that we are all wired for worship. Secondly, we're going to talk about why God is worthy of our worship. And lastly, we're going to talk about what that means for us. What does that mean for you and me? And so let's tackle that first one. We are wired for worship. Point number one, we are wired for worship. Turn to Romans 1 with me. Romans 1, we're just going to be there uh, just for uh, just a hot minute uh, at the end of, uh, towards the end of Romans chapter 1. Uh, now, we're a small church here in RSM, right? Like, we're new at this. We're just about a year into being a church family, and the church, like the big C church, the global historic church, isn't new, Right? The Big C Church isn't new, but here at King's Cross in Rancho Santa Margarita, we are a new local church, and our worship venue here, this, this, this kind of janky setup we got in a junior high theater, is really small compared to some other worship venues. And there's another worship venue really on the other side of the nation that is massive. Right? It's massive. It gets filled with worshipers week in and week out. This parking lot has tens of thousands of spots. And even still, people have to shuttle in from parking lots across the street. The sanctuary itself seats up to 800,000 people. It's got a state-of-the-art system, like sound system, visual arts system. This massive, like, 4K screen that is 58 feet tall. It's got 4,000 miles of fiber, 4,000 miles of fiber wiring to keep all of its devices connected and online. And uh, just a couple years ago, it was voted the most innovative venue of 2017. Perfect, massive setup for gathering, for singing, for shouting, for, for, for moving, just this moving experience to just stand there. And to feel the energy of so many souls just coming together with the same purpose, with the same hope, and with the same uh, mind and values. And this massive worship venue costs like $1.6 billion to build over the last several years. Can you guess what church this belongs to? You're probably thinking like, man, what, what denomination has that kind of coin? Why don't we join that one, right? <laughs> I'll give you a clue. This worship venue is in Atlanta. We've got a big event today, right? I'm talking about the Mercedes-Benz Stadium, the home of the Falcons, the venue of today's 2019 Super Bowl, Bowl where, the, where the Rams will, will beat the Patriots, I mean, play the Patriots this afternoon. 
of anywhere all throughout the year. All throughout the year, this place hosts concerts and monster truck rallies and football games, of course, where all sorts of men and women and children of various uh, walks of life and and ages just pile into the stadium to, to cheer on and to support their favorite team or their favorite player or their favorite performer. To, to, to celebrate, to cheer them on, to, to, to really just delight in them. You know what that is? In some sense, yes, that's, that's, that's worship. That's worship. You see, worship, that, that impulse of worship is ultimately a rejoicing in something that is bigger than us. Worship is ultimately a delighting in, a making much of something that is greater, that is bigger, that is more beautiful than, than us, something that we glory in. Ultimately, worship, like ultimate worship is when we actually make something, make so much of something to the point that we begin to find our own sense of worth and value and being in that thing or person to where we're actually willing to sacrifice for it. When we look at the scriptures, our standard for capital T truth, we see that we are created by God for worship. That's why we all have that impulse to make much of things. We are created by God for worship. We're hardwired by our creator for it. That's why grown men and women who don't even believe in or enjoy worshiping their creator can in some contexts be seen with their bodies painted, spending emotional energy for hours on end, depending on how the game goes, maybe spending emotional energy for days on end, right? We're all wired for worship. It's just what we do. We see in the first few pages of scriptures that when God made our first parents, Adam and Eve, that, that he wired us to honor and worship him with every moment of our lives. And everything was good that he did. And all that we did, all that humans did in the first few chapters was good. Their lives were just a natural outpouring of worship to the God who made us and who walked among us. And in the third chapter in Genesis 3, when sin entered the world, it didn't weld our praise pipes shut from outpouring. Instead, it, it, it redirected them. It redirected them so that instead of worshiping the creator, we worship creation. We start to worship created things, lesser things. We don't look to to the God who made us for ultimate satisfaction. We look to the world around us for ultimate satisfaction. To created things, to lesser things, to things that don't make us whole and can't make us whole. Here's how Paul describes this in in Romans chapter 1. Read it with me. Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. He says... Uh, where am I here? For although they knew God, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And then skip over to verse 25. He says, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, 
and worshipped and served the, the what? The creature rather than who? The creator who is blessed forever. You see, simply put, in our, in our sin and in our rebellion, our hearts and our minds will prefer creation to the creator. You see, some false gods that we worship, or idols as they're called in the scriptures, are made, are, are made like when we look at the Old Testament, some false gods were made out of wood. We see that in Isaiah. Or in Exodus, when Moses comes down from the mountain, we see idols made of gold. Sometimes our idols are made out of bank accounts or our social influence. Some we see in the mirror. You see, wherever it is at any given moment that you find your sense of value, your sense of identity, your sense of being to define who you are, that is the thing that you're worshiping. Whatever it is in every given moment that you're finding your value, identity, and being in something, that is the thing that you are worshiping. I mean, when you hear that word worship, like what comes to mind? We tend to think maybe like music, right? Oh, I love worship, right? I love singing to worship. Right? I love listening to worship. We tend to think of, of music that, 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 that comes to mind. And, and now music is a form of worship, right? But worship as defined in the scriptures is ultimately a bowing down of our hearts. A posture of abandon where we're just saying, look, I'm, I'm finding my value and my identity, the sense of who I am in, in you, Lord. That's what worship is. There's a, a, a pastor author named Harold Best who wrote this book called Unceasing Worship, which is unparalleled in how it describes like how our, our lives are, are, are really just constantly, we're constantly worshiping in every moment and every hour of every day. And so he, he says this best. Uh, Beth says this best. So read it with me on the screen. He says, at this very moment, at this very moment, and for as long as this world endures, everybody inhabiting it is bowing down and serving something or someone. Could be an artifact. Could be a person, an institution, an idea, a spirit, or, as it should be, God through Christ. What about you? What about you this morning? What is the posture of your heart in terms of your worship? What is your heart bowing down to and serving? What are, what are the things, the people, the institutions, the ideas that, that you look to to determine who you are? Why this all is? Why you are? who you are and, and, and just your sense of value and, and, and meaning. Is it Christ? Is it Christ the Redeemer? Or is it something or someone else? You see, even Christians can engage in false worship. Even Christians can have their idols. Maybe to figure out what your idol is, ask yourself, what is it that you're most afraid of? What is your most crippling fear? Maybe it's a fear of not having something, not being something, not doing something. 
what is it that you give yourself to that you'd be willing to sacrifice anything for it? Where do you run for comfort? What food, what drink, what person, what relationship, what activity? It could be a food, it could be a drink, it could be sex, it could be anger, right? What are the emotions that overpower you to the point that, that you know they're displeasing to God, but you just say, you know, I, I, I'm not, that's just the way that I am. So I'm going to be okay with that. How you answer those questions will reveal, like, what is it that you truly worship, what you truly value? You see, Jesus, though, he came to transform us, didn't he? He came to rewire us from false worshipers to true worshipers. He reorients our hearts so that the lesser things no longer become ultimate things. So that through the gospel, we begin to see God as who he really is. As the source of all that is true, but also all that is good and beautiful and satisfying. There's an old theologian who once said, our hearts will be restless until they find their rest in God. Jesus came to bring us and to restore us to that rest in him. So that's our first point. We are wired for worship. Secondly, I want us to see and talk about why God is worthy of our worship. Why God is worthy of our worship. So it's a big question that we're after today is how do we live in a, a countercultural life of worship as disciples of Jesus in South Orange County? You see, our culture is constantly telling us, you're it, right? Our culture is constantly telling us, you're number one. Be yourself. Worship, we could say, yourself. Go for the thing that you think makes you happy. The gospel of Jesus, though, says, no, there's something truer and better than that. There's something more beautiful than that. There's something worth truly living for, which is the glory and worth of God, our maker, the one in whose image we are made. And so first, I want you to see how God is worthy of our worship simply because he is God. Sit on those words. God is worthy of our worship simply because he's God. I want us to see now, the Apostle Paul is going to help us see what that looks like. Turn, turn forward now to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. Now, at this point, at this point in Romans chapter 11, Paul has been going on for like 10 chapters, 10 to 11 chapters, up until verse 33, he's been going on and on and on about the beauty of the gospel, right? We talked about that uh, a few weeks ago when I, when I was preaching on, on how we want to be a church that's centered on the gospel. If you want to get sort of like a, 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 a crash course on the good news of Jesus Christ, read the book of Romans, right? Talks about our depravity, our sinfulness, about how God took us in our wretchedness, brought us from the kingdom of darkness and, and ushered us into the kingdom of light with him through Jesus, through his life, through his death, his burial and resurrection. And Paul is for 11 chapters, 11 chapters in our English Bible, he has been going on and on and on about the beauties and the glories of the gospel. <clears throat> And at this point, at the end of chapter 11, 
he burst out in what theologians call a doxology, a bursting out of praise. Read it with me in verse 33. We're going to read the next few verses, but let's just read the first one. Paul says, in light of meditating on the gospel and who God is, he says, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. Notice how he goes to town on those exclamation points, right? He just goes to town with it. You get this sense that this is, he's just shouting this, right? This is, this is a loud burst. He's just totally amazed at the God that he's been reflecting on in the previous chapters. And don't miss that first word, oh. He says, oh, the depth. He's, as he's not, now this, 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 this oh there is a fascinating word in the original language. It's, it's not this, this sense of like, oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you, right? I mean, this just happens to be the first word that explodes from his mouth. He just can't help but saying, oh, oh. After reflecting for 11 chapters on who God is in Jesus Christ, he says, oh, he didn't consult a thesaurus. He just bursts out, oh, the depths. His soul is overwhelmed. His, his soul is stirred. His heart is stirred. He's just standing there in, in awe and in amazement. And what does he say? He says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. The depths of them. In other words, he's saying, the riches, the wisdom, the knowledge of God, you can't measure it. You can't plunge the depths. Oh, the depth, he says. You can't be plunged. You can't find the bottom. Its number is incalculable. A few days ago, you may have read in the news, like a handful of billionaires got together at the World Economic Forum in Davos, and, uh, and they had this sort of like uh, dis discussion there, and, and, and online and, and at the forum, people were kind of taking these billionaires to task for having too much money, right, and saying that, you know, we should tax like all the world's richest people could, could help with global poverty, and they're, and, they're, and, they're, and they're doing all the numbers, and they're like, you know, if, if we tax them like this much, then, then and this is the richest guys in the world. Right? Like, if we tax them this much, then they could do this. Now, I don't care what your politics are on that, but I just want to point out to you that in this situation, it just reveals to us that you could be the richest person in the world, but someone can still crunch the numbers on what you have. It's still, in some sense, quantifiable. That's why there was a debate about it. Paul says, not the riches of God. Not the riches of God. They know no bounds. They're deeper than deep and steeper than steep. And his riches, God's riches, are more valuable and precious than any earthly riches that anybody has. More than any stock option or savings pile, they're the riches of his kingdom, his inheritance, the riches of who he is, his character. His attributes, his glory, his majesty, his mercy toward us, those are the riches of God. 
Not only does Paul say the riches of God are and his holiness are deep, but he says also his wisdom and knowledge are deep. I want you to notice he says these are two separate things, right? He says, oh, the depths of, of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. You see, you can have tons of knowledge, but wisdom is like a whole nother level, isn't it? Like when you're looking for counsel, do you call the person that you know who's like the smart, who knows the most things, or the one that you would consider wise? And Paul says, with God, we don't have to choose. God has perfect and measurable knowledge. Like he doesn't have to Wikipedia anything. But he also has perfect and measurably deep wisdom. He just exists on a whole nother level. Read the rest of verse 33 with me. He says, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. This God is unlike any other. His, his mind, just the way that he is and the way that he works is just untouchable. Nothing compares. And then in verse 34, he quotes Isaiah 40 when he says, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? I'll give you a clue. The answer is nobody, right? Nobody has known the mind of the Lord. You can't give the all-wise God advice. You can't be his counselor. Like who in their right mind would try and tell God how to do his job? What's nuts is we do that all the time. We do that all the time, every single one of us. When we say, why, does, why doesn't God just give me blank, right? If only I had that, then I would have everything I need. If only I had a different job. If I had a spouse, or maybe if you're married, if I had a different spouse, if I had that house over there or that, this much money in my savings, then I'd feel complete and whole and secure. God, you don't know what you're doing. Paul, quoting Isaiah, says, Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who can be his counselor? And look at verse 35 where he now quotes the book of Job. He says, Or who has given a gift to him? Who has given a gift to God? that God might be repaid. How many of you guys are familiar with the story of Job? Right? Job is a story that is absolutely bananas, right? Like in the beginning of the first, first the, well, as soon as the story of, of Job opens, you have this guy who has everything, right? He's got a great reputation. He's got a great family. He's got great land, inheritance, right? And then one after the other, they're all taken from him, Right? The enemy, in order to test Job's faith, takes everything from him. A man who had everything then loses everything. It's a tragic story. And then on top of all that, in, it's like as, as if his existence wasn't awful enough at this point, his wife offers some sharp advice to him. She says, hey, Job, honey, why don't you just curse God and then die? Thanks, babe, right? That's really helpful. And Job refuses. He says, no, I'm not going to do that. He tells his wife, look, we can't only accept the good from God and not the bad. You see, he just refuses to bash God to his wife. 
But from that moment on, over the next several chapters, Job's, uh, Job's, Job's soul begins to take a, 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 a de- depressing and, and, and tragic turn. And the rest of Job, slowly, he starts to break down. And then he starts to ask some honest questions like, God, really, like, why, why are you doing this? Why is my life unfolding the way that it is? And he starts to say things like, I wish I could just sit God down, look him in the face, point my finger at him, and just ask him some questions. For chapter on chapter, towards the end of Job, he says, you know, God, I just wish I could sit God down and just ask him some questions. And then Job chapter 38, God shows up and says, hey, you called? <laughs> you called? And then God just tells, tells Job, no, you brace yourself because I, I want to ask you some questions. I want to ask you some questions, Job. And then God says, where were you when I created the universe? When I told this star to go over here and that star to go over there, where were you when I thought up the laws of physics that everything in creation just naturally abides by, has to submit to? Where were you when I thought up the ocean and told the shore where to stop? Where were you when I formed mankind from the dust of the ground? And then God says to Job, and this is what Paul is quoting, he says, who has any claim against me where I owe them back? Everything under heaven belongs to me, God says. In other words, God is pointing out to Job. He exists on a whole nother level. God doesn't owe you anything. You have nothing to give him, he says in that verse, that isn't already his. You guys remember that, 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 that band, Sixpence, None the Richer? Have, am I, is that like, I was born in 83, so maybe like, yeah, maybe there's a smaller group than I anticipated that remembers that band. But Sixpence, None the Richer, they got their name from, uh, uh, from Mere Christianity when C.S. Lewis ta- tells about how, uh, you know, trying to give anything to God is like getting six pence from your grandfather and buying him a gift just to give it to him, all right? You can't can't offer God anything that isn't already his. On the flip side, what that tells us is God doesn't need anything. He doesn't need anything from us. Now, why does that matter? It shows us that the primary reason God is worthy of worship is simply because of who he is. He's just worthy of it. He's not like any person. He's not like any creature. God isn't worshipped by us because he needs it from us, right? Some of my skeptic friends, it's like they, they, they talk about how, oh, you know, the God of the Bible, he just sounds like really needy and narcissistic and like self-centered, right? Demanding worship from us. It's like, no, man, you have it all backwards. If God is God, it's not that he needs worship from us. It's that he's worthy of it. It's because we worship not because he needs it from us, but it's because he's better than us. He's bigger than us. He's worthy in every way of our worship. And so we bow to him. We sing of him. We read of him. We celebrate him. As Paul does in verse 36 at the end of chapter of Romans chapter 11, where Paul, after, after just going on about God's character and nature, in verse 36 he says, For from him, for from God and through God and to him are 
What, how many things? All things. To him be glory forever. Amen. He's the creator of the universe. He's the sustainer of all that is. Everything exists to give him glory. That's why Paul isn't composed and lets out that undignified oh. Oh, the depths. This God is amazing. He's unfathomable. Therefore, we worship him. To, to him be glory forever. If all are made by him and for him, then, then all of us should just give him his due. Because he's worth it. Now, not only is God worthy of worship because of who he is, but also because of what he's done. God is worthy of worship not just because of who he is, but also because of what he's done. Read the next verse with me. Romans chapter 12 now, verse 1. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. In other words, therefore, in light of everything that I, that I, that I said to you in the last 11 chapters, in light of all these things, he says, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, in light of that gospel, I, I urge you, I appeal to you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your what? Your spiritual worship. So if we want to be true worshipers, we want to be countercultural worshipers. Not worshiping creation, but creation, worshiping the creator. Then we need to realize that prior to God's mercy, we were just dead in our sins and trespasses. The riches of God's mercies. We walked in the ways of the world. We indulged in self-worship and creature worship, rebelliously finding our value, our identity, our being, not in God, but in other things. We chased after our own pleasures until God, in his mercy, snatched us, saved us, redeemed us from darkness, and brought us into his kingdom of light. John Calvin says it this way. He says, men will never worship God with a sincere heart or be roused to fear and obey him with sufficient zeal until they properly understand how much they are indebted to his mercy. You see, prior to God's mercy, it was not good news for us. Prior to God's mercy, Apart from God's mercy, we are objects of his righteous wrath. Not because he's an angry, vindictive God, but because he's holy and worthy of pure worship. And he could have left us like that. He could have left us as objects of his wrath. He could have left us broken and fallen. But because he's infinite, not only in character, but in mercy, because of the love he loved you, with which he loved you personally, even in your rebellion, he sent Jesus to die for you. He sent Jesus to live for you, to die in your place for you and to raise and rise to walk in newness of life for you. 
so that you can walk in newness of life, so that you could be a true worshiper. What is the only proper response to that? To the bigness of who God is and his greatness and the beauty of who he is and his grace. What is the only proper response to the bigness of who God is and his greatness and the, the beauty of who he is and his grace? Worship. That is the only proper response. You see, the key to praising God is to prize him. To be satisfied with him in all that he is for us. In our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, one of the one of the biggest, I think, problems that we have in our culture, and even like in the church, in the Western church, in the American church, is that our view of God is really just too small. Our view of God is really too small. And so even in Christian culture, it's like we, we, we end up starting these churches and publishing these books that are, that are all about, you know, like how, 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 to, how, to be a, how to be a better you, how to solve your, your problems and, and how to, uh, 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 you know, just kind of work with your issues. There's absolutely nothing wrong with talking about you being the best you and and, 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 and tackling the issues that we, we all have and, and having sermons and books and things like that. But it is a problem if that's all we have. And if we talk about that without talking about living in the light of God's greatness and mercy, you see, our, our biggest need isn't to think more of ourselves, but to think more of the God who's worthy of worship the bigness of who he is, the greatness of who he is, the worthiness of who he is. And when you stand in the presence of a God like that, when you read the word in your devotionals, knowing that you're hearing from a God like that, that changes you. That transforms your posture. That helps you deal with your issues. That's why Solomon says over and over in many of the psalmists that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You want to know how to be wise? You want to know God's will for your life? You need to start by making much of him. That's your point number one. That is your starting point. Doesn't matter whatever kind of whatever else like you're receiving from God's word. If you don't understand that God is God and you are not, then you're starting in the wrong place. The key to praising God is to prize Him, to ascribe Him the worth that He's due. Not just because He is God, but also because of what this God has done for us in Jesus. Leads us now to our last point. What does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? Read Romans 12, verses 1 and 2 with me. He says, Again, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And he says, Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now, what I want you to see here is just a few quick notes on these verses, and then we'll close. All right? So first... Countercultural worship 
I want you to see here is holy. It's set apart, right? He says, I want you, Paul says, I appeal to you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That is your spiritual worship. You see, if we are truly worshipers of God through Jesus, then our lives should be marked by holiness. Our lives should have a set-apartness to it, right? You can't call yourself a worshiper of God in any meaningful sense of that word if you're not in some sense set apart, right? Coming to church doesn't make you a worshiper. Having a Bible on your bookshelf doesn't make you a worshiper. Growing up in a Christian home doesn't make you a worshiper. Having a PhD in theology doesn't make you a worshiper. If we want to be truly worshipers of God through Jesus Christ, then we have to allow Jesus to so transform and reorient us to where we begin to walk in his ways. That our lives are marked by holiness, a set-apartness. Let me be honest now. Too often, my life is not set apart enough from the world around me. Too often, the things that, that make me anxious are things that should not make me anxious. The things that make me depressed are things that should not make me depressed. Too often, my life is not set apart enough from the world and the way the world thinks. Jesus elsewhere, he even says it like this. He says, I want you to live in the world as if you're not from it. Live like Jesus who purchased your life with his blood. You see, God wants all of us. He wants all of us. He doesn't just want our Sundays. He wants our lives. He says, I want your life, your actions, your heart, the whole package. I want your whole life to be set apart, your whole body, all of who you are to be set apart. You know how that happens? It happens by the transforming grace of God in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see... Holiness, holiness isn't just a, uh, is, is, isn't, isn't just uh, setting apart like a specific day of the week. Holiness isn't uh, just saying uh, certain things. Uh, holiness isn't uh, just hanging out with a certain group of people. No, holiness is having our whole lives set apart by God and Jesus Christ. Holiness in the Christian life isn't just having the willpower to do the right things. It's the overflow of worshiping the God of all mercy. It's having a heart and mind so transformed by Jesus that we begin to see him and savor him as a source of all that is true and good and beautiful and satisfying and excellent. We begin to see God as who he really is. Secondly, I want you to see that countercultural worship actually renews our minds. Countercultural worship renews our minds. Read verse 2 with me. He says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. What is it that you're constantly thinking about? What is it that your mind is always on, that you are always worrying about? What messages are you always listening to? Paul says you need a new way of thinking. 
you want to be a worshiper of God, you need to be in a new way of thinking. You see, sometimes we think that God wants to clean ourselves up before we come to him, right? But God isn't looking for people with a clean record. The Bible says he's near to the brokenhearted, to the crushed in spirit. He wants worshipers that are so tore up over their sin and their own need for, their, for his mercy that they recognize they have nothing to bring to his table other than their need for his grace. That's a radical new way of thinking. If God wanted us to clean ourselves up, then he would have said, look, I just, I want you to set yourselves apart on the outside, right? I want you to, to do things that are holy and acceptable. But no, Paul says, I want your whole life to be a living sacrifice, I want your whole life to be a living sacrifice. I want you to, your whole life to be marked by how, how big our God is and, and how small we are. You see, that's why, as I said earlier, like, you know, sometimes we, we just want to, and, and when it comes to our, our spirituality, all we want to talk about is like our issues in our life. And, 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 and again, that matters. But this is better for you. Bigness of God is better for you. The worthiness of his nature is better for you. To see him worthy of worship, to see that God is worthy of being made much of, that the God who is worthy of being made much of has also made much of you. That gospel will preach. That gospel will transform you. To know that the God who is deep in his riches and wisdom and knowledge and love and mercy can be personally known by you because of Jesus. That's a countercultural way of thinking, a renewal of our minds. Lastly, countercultural worship gathers and scatters for worship. Gathers and scatters. Now, this whole thing that we've been talking about, the worthiness of our God, that, brothers and sisters, is why we gather for worship. That is why we do what we do every week in and every week out. Corporate worship, gathered worship is a means of God's grace. It's not an option for the Christian. Not an option. Read the New Testament. See, like, when Christians gathered, when Christians got saved, when they got their lives transformed by Christ, they gathered for worship on Sundays that they renamed the Lord's Day because it belonged to Him. One of the most countercultural things that we can do as Christians is to say that because Jesus lived and died for me, because he rose from the grave on a Sunday, I will sacrificially live in obedience to the fourth commandment by setting aside a few hours of my day once a week on Sunday to celebrate the power of the resurrection in my life with my family, my spiritual family. That's why we come together. That's why we gather. We gather in unity and shared worship is it's not only one of the great, not only to worship the God who is great in his majesty, but also to celebrate the greatness of his love for us in Jesus. Love for his people that is wildly undeserved yet lavishly given. We make much of him and we celebrate the gospel. You may have noticed if you've been here with us long enough that like our, intent, our worship gatherings, we, we try to be really intentional with them, right? 
Like there's, we certainly leave room for this, the, the, the spirit to just like to, to, to move. Uh, but but we, we have like a, a, a set sort of order of worship uh, throughout church history. We've called it like a liturgy, a rhythm of how we do things. And you may have heard me or, or Oscar or someone else say, you know, the reason that we do these things in our, liter- in our, in our, in our, in our liturgy is because uh, we're, we're trying to create uh, public rhythms for us as a church that we hope you take home as private practice. So what I mean by that is when we gather for worship like this on, on, on Sundays, when we start with the call to worship, as Joe said uh, this morning when he opened up and he said, you know, we start read a call to worship at the beginning of our wor- worship gatherings because the reason that we worship is in response of, of, of who God is, of what God has declared. And so we hope that by the call of worship that, that, you, that you remember throughout the week that, man, the worship that you do, this, this day-to-day worship that you do, your Monday through Saturday worship life is in response of who God is because of what he's revealed in his word. Then we have this silent prayer of confession at the beginning of our service every single Sunday. And for some of us, like that, that 15, 20 seconds of silence might be like the only 20 seconds of silence that you have all week long, right? But we create that rhythm in our worship gathering because we want to say, hey, look, this public rhythm that we have of confessing our sins before God, expressing our need for his grace and prayer, man, that's something that we want our entire lives to be marked by. We want confession to happen, as Oscar said, in, in our homes and in our relationships, in our community. We... We, we not only confess our sins together, but we read out loud the insurance of God's grace, right? The reason that we read that out loud together is because when you actually look at the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, when God's people gathered, they raised their voice up together in one voice. It says not just to sing songs, but to recite scripture. And so that's why we read the assurance of grace together. You see, it's because as worshipers here this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus... You're not here as a consumer. You're here as a participant, right? I'm participating in worship right now just as much as you are. You should be participating in worship right now just as much as anybody who comes up here. We all participate in worship as God's people together. That's why we sing together. That's why we recite God's word together. And that's why we take communion together. Communion is a way that we rehearse the gospel of the God who's worthy of our worship. Jesus says, every time you gather, do this in remembrance of me. This bread represents my body, which was broken for you. This blood represents my blood, which was spilt for you. Everything that we do in our worship gathering celebrates this gospel. We gather in worship just so that we can scatter in worship throughout the week. So that what happens here on a Sunday morning fills us up and sends us out like the benediction does each week. Sends us out to worship through the rest of the week. We don't just worship at church. We worship at work. We worship at home. We worship on the block because worship is simply making much of the one who is worthy. There's no clocking in and clocking out of that. It's an unceasing outpouring of who we are in Jesus Christ. God is, after all, for us, 
worthy of being the one who we bow down to with all that we are. God is after all of us. He's after all of us, right? He wants us to worship not because we have to, but because we get to. We get to by the transforming grace of Jesus, and no other worship will do. No other worship will do. God wants all of us. He's saying, I want you. I want all of you. I want your life to be like a living sacrifice of worship. I want all of you. I want to display, God says, glory through your life so that through your life of worship, the name of Jesus would spread. It would spread to be praised throughout our neighborhoods and throughout the ends of the world. God is saying, yes, sing those songs, worship in that way. Yes, gather for worship on the Lord's day. But more than anything, I want your life, he says. I love you, he says. I chose you. I redeemed you by the blood of Jesus. And I'm setting you apart now so that your life is a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to me. That is a Christian life. That is a Christian life. A life that so encounters the grace of Jesus that we're changed by it. That we no longer worship the things of this world and find ourselves constantly empty because of it, but we worship the one who is all true, all good, and all satisfying. Maybe you're here this morning and you're still kind of figuring out this whole Jesus thing, right? Like, I don't know where everyone's at here on the spiritual spectrum, but you're like, man, I don't, I don't know that I've ever worshipped God like that. And the good news for you is you, know, you, don't, you don't have to clean yourself up to come to God. You don't, you don't have to earn yourself at the table of worshipers. God calls you into worship. He says, look, you don't have to clean yourself up. I'll clean you up through the blood of Jesus. And so the good news for you is that you can just repent and believe and join us as a true worshiper here today. Join his family. Worship the God who's worthy of our worship. Maybe you're here and you're like, you know, I, I, I believe I'm a genuine follower of Jesus. I, I consider myself a worshiper of, of, of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But my life does not look like this, right? My life is not a living sacrifice. Good news for you also is that you don't have to clean yourself up to, become, to come back to the table of worshipers. Paul says, in light of God's mercies. In light of God's mercies, he says, I appeal to you. Be a living sacrifice. It's only in light of what Jesus has done for us. It's only when we can be so transformed by him that we can worship him as he's worthy. Again, there's nothing that we bring to the table of worship other than our need for God's grace. Nothing. And so you can rejoice because God has given us that grace in Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.